All right, so if you've got a note sheet, um, I'm going to just go ahead and give you the big idea right up front. As you're getting it, I want to show you a quick picture. This is a good picture for you to remember um, what we don't want to have happen to you. We're coming to the end of the Acts series. You got that picture? Go ahead. This is 1992. This is Barcelona. This is Gail Devers. What a great name. Gail Devers in 1992 in Barcelona was trying to become the first woman in the history of the Olympics to gold medal in the 100-meter dash and also the 100-meter hurdles. And so she had already won the gold in the 100-meter dash, and she was going to do the 100-meter hurdles. This was her specialty. This is what she did. And she was leading the entire race up until the last hurdle, which she hit with her foot. And this is a picture of her beginning to stumble to the finish line. She went from first to fifth like that and did not become the first woman to gold in the 100-meter and 100-meter hurdles. This is what we do not want to have happen to you. I mean, I do want you to grow up and be in the Olympics if you're old enough to do that or young enough to do that. That'd be great. You'd go win a gold and stand on the platform and say, it's all because of Paul at the gathering. <laughs> I'm kidding. Please don't do that. I, I just, we're at the end of Acts, Okay we got like three weeks left. It's been a long teaching, a long series. I don't want us to stumble across the finish line. I want us to finish this strong. Okay, so today, when the person next to you starts to nod off, just punch them and say, don't be Gail Devers. Okay, let's practice that right now, shall we? Do you want to practice punching people? No. <laughs> yeah, let's don't do that. So we're going to be in Acts uh, 24. If you're if you're here for the first time today, we've been for like it seems like forever, but I think it's this is the 33rd week that we've taught in Acts. Just taking our time, not being in a hurry. We figured there's a church of about 120 in a small town. We're a church of about 120 in a small town, although it looks like we're growing. And just kind of what did they do? And if we do the same thing, maybe God will be faithful like He was then. And it's been phenomenal. It's been a great, great series. Today we're going to wrap up three chapters. We're going to take off a big chunk. So i got to give you the big idea, and then i got to try to show you how it all works out. So if you got a sheet, this is when you fill in those top blanks. The big idea today is dun, 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 God's peace often blows man's peace to pieces. God's peace often blows man's peace to pieces. So right away, we, we see we needed to define some terms here, okay? So let me see if I can walk us through what that means. First point, the truth about peace. Um, if you turn on the news, then you'll hear things like peace treaties. You'll hear, um, how many of you would love to have peace and quiet? <laughs> yeah. Um, last night, Wendy was watching um, Miss Congeniality, Sandra Bullock. Anybody like that movie? It, I'm not ashamed to say, as a man, it's one of my favorite movies, okay? She's pretty funny in that. And we just love, I love the part where they get up and they're like, you know, I want world peace, I want world peace, I want world peace. And she says she wants stronger regulation for gun control or something like that. Yeah, harsher punishment for parole violators. Like I said, nothing like I said. That's what she said. And the whole room just gets quiet. And then she goes... And world peace. And everybody starts clapping, going nuts, right? So, you know, we, we hear about peace all the time. If you're a parent of a young child, you would be happy with some peace and quiet for sure. All of us want peace of mind. But here's the thing. We use the term peace. It sounds really good. 
But what we're, we're conditioned to understand about peace is not necessarily how God defines peace. Okay, so when I say that God's peace blows man's peace to pieces, that sounds bad, right? Like, aren't I supposed to be at peace? Aren't I supposed to be happy? But we have to understand what peace really is. If you think about it, a peace treaty between two countries means that they won't fight for a number of years. Parents on a long road trip will play the quiet game for however long they can convince their kids to play it. I usually start at two hours. Okay, kids, for the next two hours, we're going to play the quiet game. Go. If I get five minutes, I'm happy, right? If you've got neighbors that you don't get along with, what do you typically do with neighbors that you don't get along with? You can't really kill them. You probably don't want to move. So you build a fence. See, our peace is not really peace. What it really is is just a pause from chaos. Is that fair to say? Um, in order to have true peace, you have to have true rest. And the problem is, with man's peace, there's never really true rest behind it. How many of you have had a newborn at some time in your life? Raise your hand. Okay, I think this will not just be me and Wendy. This will be all of you. When you have a newborn, and you put that newborn to, to bed, and they go to sleep, you tiptoe out of the room, right? You get into your bed, and you lay down. Do you sleep Fitfully and restfully? Heck no. You're holding your breath the whole time. Trying to make sure that, you know, please God, don't let her wake up. And then you hear a stirring and your eyes open. And then you hear, meh, 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 meh. And then you're like, ugh. You get up, you go in, you rock that baby back to bed, you put her back in the crib, and you go through the whole thing again. Parents with, with small children, you don't sleep well at all. There's no peace because you can't really Rest, But God's peace is a lasting peace. It lasts in every situation, whether good or bad. Write these verses down underneath number one. Mark chapter 4, verse 38. God's peace allowed Jesus to sleep in a boat when fishermen who should have known better were freaking out during a storm. Philippians 4, 7. God's peace allowed followers of Jesus to experience rest even when it seems that we shouldn't. That verse says that God has a peace that passes all understanding. Now some of you are smarter than others, right? You're just too humble to admit it. So like for me, for God's peace to pass my understanding, it does not take long. I don't have a lot of understanding. Some of you are really smart, but no matter how smart you are, God's peace passes all understanding. True peace True peace comes from a right relationship with God through what Jesus did on the cross. If you want to jot this down, see if this helps you understand it. Man's peace is based on external circumstances. God's peace is based on internal relationships. We base our peace on external circumstances. If everything's going great, if the Panthers win even a preseason game, then everything's fantastic with the world. If I come home from a long day and Wendy has fixed my favorite meal... There's peace. It's all external. Right now, there's a siren. So somebody right now is not experiencing peace, right? Because it's all based on external. But God's peace is based, and it was a police car. Somebody's definitely not experiencing peace right now. They're like, oh, no. But God's peace is based on internal relationships. So when we're right with God, we have peace. Here's a few more verses to write down. Romans 5.10 says that you and I were enemies with God. Romans 5.8 says that while we were enemies with God, Christ died for us. So that Romans 5.1, we're working backwards through that chapter, 
We can trust Jesus' work on the cross. And Romans 5.1 says, because we've been justified, we have peace with God. Okay, are you with me so far? Okay. So that's what the big idea means. The only way for us to have real peace with God is for God literally to blow our peace to smithereens. God's peace blows man's peace to pieces. And it's not because he's a jerk. It's because he's trying to show us that his peace in Jesus is far more lasting than man's peace without Jesus. So here's how we're going to summarize it. I mentioned walls earlier and fences. Man builds walls in order to live in peace from each other. Jesus destroys walls so we can live in peace with each other. I love this place. Look around. Just look around. See how different we are? I mean, I, I make you do this almost every week, but you, you never do it. You never look around. Like, your head always just looks at me like, does he really mean to look around? I mean, I really mean it. Look around. This is a miracle. When people that are this different can be in the same room and not fight. You can't even get together with your own family in the same room and not fight. Thanksgiving and Christmas, not always moments of peace, right? So when people that are different can be in the same room and, and actually get along, this is huge. This is what God does. Man builds walls in order to live in peace from each other. Jesus destroys walls so we can live in peace with each other. So the second point, how does God blow our peace to pieces? Um, Our idea of peace, again, is that it's feeling-based, and so whenever something doesn't feel good, we think of it as bad. So let's just use a married couple as an example. And I know you married couples, this does not relate to any of you. Y'all are perfect, okay? And it does, definitely does not relate to me and Wendy. But let's just take an example of a married couple that argues constantly. They just, they're always arguing, always arguing. It's the, the exception to the rule is when they're not arguing. So they're always bickering, always fighting. And so what do they decide to do? Their first thought is, let's get a divorce so that I can have some peace. But that's man's idea of peace. So God's idea of peace would be, let's get in that marriage and let's blow that couple up. I mean, I know if they're arguing a lot, they literally want to blow each other up. But God would just want to blow you up on the inside so that you become a wreck. Can you imagine being married to a man? I, I can't imagine being married to a man. But can you, can you imagine being married to a man who fights with you all the time? And then one day you wake up and when you expect him to fight with you, he's broken and weeping and begging you to forgive him. Now, I'm not a woman. But if I was, that would jack me up. I would not know what to do with that. Like, is this a game? Is it a trick? What are you going to do to me? Are you just trying to woo me in so you can really hit me harder? It would blow, it would blow my peace up. It would mess me up. But that's what God wants to do. He wants to mess up your perception of peace. And why would he do that in a marriage? So that the husband and the wife can begin to deal with their relationship with Jesus. And when that's fixed and they have peace with God through Jesus, now they can begin to have peace with each other. That's how God fixes broken marriages. He doesn't fix them by just giving you a break for a week at the beach with your girlfriend so you can act like you're single. 
sometimes the disturbance in our peace is not Satan. It is not your circumstance. Sometimes it's actually the convicting power of the truth of God. It's God blowing your peace up. So in three chapters, Acts 24 through 26, we're not going to read all three chapters. Everybody say, whew. Oh, y'all wanted me to read it. I can sense that. Jay does. He's like, read the whole thing. I'm not going to do it. But here's what we're going to see. Three times in three different men that have authority over Paul, we're going to see how this concept fleshes itself out. So here we go. The first time is Felix. We're in Acts chapter 24. And Paul's going to start, he's going to go through three different trials. The first is in front of a guy named Felix. Um, just starting in verse 1, we won't read all of it. He ends up kind of giving his defense for why the Jews are accusing him. Basically says, I've not done anything to them. Felix listens for a little bit. And I want you to jump over to verse 24. Acts 24, verse 24. Here's what happens. Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla. What a great name. Who was a Jewess. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul discoursed on righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and said, that's enough for now. You may leave. So I'm reading that, okay? And it's like, obviously... Paul kind of hit a nerve, didn't he? I mean, do you, you have enough self-awareness to know when you push somebody's buttons, right? Of course you do, because you do it on purpose, <laughs> right? You're like, you know what, the, you know what their, their button is, so you're like, <laughs> So Paul pushes some, I don't, did he know? I have no clue if he knew or not. But when I started studying this, I'm, I'm, cause I'm like, God, I mean, righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. It's pretty thr- Three pretty specific things to talk about. So what is it about those three things that really ticked Felix off? And then I started studying. Guess what? Guess what I learned about Felix? Guess how Felix and Drusilla met? Drusilla was married to somebody else. Another king. Another ruler. And Felix saw her and went, she is one hot girl. Because she was 16 years old. And so Felix said, I want her and he had somebody go and convince her that really you don't need to be with this guy. If you'll leave your husband and you'll be married to Felix, Felix will make you happy. Because Felix's name means happy. Now that's a line right there, isn't it? Hey, baby. I'm Felix. I'm happy. You come hang with me, I'll make you happy. And it worked. And she left her husband and she went and she was married to Felix. So, if... If you've um, left your spouse to marry another person and then a preacher sits down with you and starts to talk about, let's see, what was it again? Righteousness, self-control, and judgment. I'm thinking at some point you'd be like, oh, that's, that's good for now, thanks. It's enough. And what did he say? He said, when I find it convenient... I'll send for you. When I find it convenient. If you read the rest of that chapter, you'll find that he never found it convenient. And two years later, when he was relieved of his authority, Paul was still in jail. Now, let me ask you this. When is it convenient, you and Jesus? Is that what we do to God? Do we say, man, that's awesome. Wow, what a great testimony. Um, But, you know, that's good for now. I don't want to go too far. 
I don't want to be crazy. So when it's convenient, God, I'll have you come back. And we'll keep talking. I'll just kind of keep Jesus over here for now. It's not convenient right now. That was Felix's response. Do you see how kind of the peace of God, God wants Felix to have peace with him. And so his way to get that is he blew, he blew Felix up. Felix had a good thing going. I got Drusilla. I got my trophy wife. We're hanging out. Everybody thinks she's hot, and she is. And I'm like one of the most important people here. Nobody's going to have the nerve to tell me that I'm wrong. And then God sends Paul to blow that up. That's what God does. Second time, it's Festus. These are some great names. You got Felix, you got Festus. This is in chapter 25 and all the way into chapter 26. Let me just catch you up. Um, again, Paul shares his defense. It's a new trial in front of a new, a new ruler. And eventually, Paul appeals to Caesar. Now, when I read that, you're like, what does that mean? I appeal to Caesar. Um, anybody play cards in here for money? <laughs> it's just, I'm trying to catch you. I'm just messing with you. <laughs> But if you play cards, you, you know what a trump card is, right? Like, you know, when I don't play a lot of cards, but I hate it when I'm holding, like, like an ace. And I play the ace like, ha! And some jerk plays the two of the trump, spa you know, the trump suit. I hate that, you know? Because a trump card, once you play a trump card, man, it doesn't matter what anybody else plays, you win. And so Paul plays a trump card. See, there's this coup back in Jerusalem. They want to kill Paul. And so they say, hey, they talk to um, Festus. Look, if you can get them to agree to come back to Jerusalem, just have them come back to Jerusalem. We'll do the trial there. But what they're really going to do is just kill them. And so Festus says, I'm not going to do that. And so eventually while he's talking to Paul, he says, well, look, would you be willing to go back to Jerusalem and stand trial in front of me? And Paul, being a smart man, says, I'm not going back to Jerusalem. I appeal to Caesar, which basically means send me to Rome now. And he had to. He had to send him. So when you read that, like, well, what is that about, appealing to Caesar? It was just a trump card. There's nothing they could have said that would have changed anything after that. So Festus brings in a king. His name is Agrippa. To also hear Paul's defense because Festus has no idea what to do with Paul. Like, i got this man here. There's a bunch of people that want to kill him, and I can't figure out why. So, hey, King Agrippa, it's good to have you. Why don't you come hang out with me? We'll eat some food, and we'll get Paul to come in, and you can hear his story and help me figure out what in the world to do with Paul. So at this point, Paul's just a mystery to these men. In Acts chapter 26, verse 24, I know we just jumped way over there. Acts 26, verse 24. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. Because to this point, they're just, he's just kind of humoring them. They're listening, not really paying attention. And he says, you're out of your mind, Paul. I've heard that before. Lots of teachers have told me that. You're out of your mind, Paul. Your great learning is driving you insane. I'm not sure if I've ever heard great learning. So what, what was it that Paul said that made Festus react like that? It's, it's in verse 23. That Christ would suffer and is the first to rise from the dead would proclaim light to his own people and to the Gentiles. Paul mentions the resurrection. If you read 24 through 26, you'll see him mention the resurrection a number of times. And something about the resurrection really got under Festus' skin. He said, look, you're crazy. Now, why would the resurrection bother anybody? Because if Jesus is dead, then he's just a dude. But if he's alive, 
He's King of Kings. He's Lord of Lords. And He's not just Lord of Paul's life, but He wants to be Lord of Festus's life as well. But Festus is a ruler. He's in authority. And if Jesus becomes Lord of his life, then he has to deal with that. So as long as everything stays the same, look, I'm in authority. People do what I say. And I've got peace because whatever I say goes. If, if, as long as he's got peace like that, everything's cool. But the minute Paul mentions the resurrection, wait a second. So you're saying it's possible there's a, another king with more authority than me? Like, I might have to change things that I do in my life because as a guy that you said was dead and now he's alive? Now, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Festus says, dude, you're crazy. So then Paul ignores Festus. Love that. He says, I'm not insane. Verse 25, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. But what I'm saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar. So in verse 26, Paul stops talking to Festus and starts talking to this dude named Agrippa. Anybody here with your middle name Agrippa? If it is, use the initial A. Don't actually tell people your name's Agrippa. Just go by A. My um, granddad, his name was A.L. Jenkins. We always wondered why he went with A.L. and then we found out his name was Astor Lafayette. I think he made a good choice. What do you think? I think A.L. was the way to go there. So if your name's Agrippa, just stick with A. So here's what he, here's what he says to King Agrippa. Paul is talking to Festus. Festus taps out. Like, I'm, you're crazy. I've had enough. So he kind of turns his back. And so Paul turns to the king. Now, this is the, as high of an authority as he can get to until he gets to Rome. He turns to the king, and here's what he says in verse 26. The king is familiar with these things, and I'll speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner, which just has nothing to do with the message, but just put this in your back pocket. Christianity is not a secret. The things that God's doing, he does not do in a corner with the light turned down. He shines the light brightly. He wants everybody to know what he's up to. Okay? That was free. Verse 27, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Now, do you, I mean, do you catch this? How Paul's just like turning all the attention on this king? He's saying, listen, um, let's just talk, me and you. Let's talk, King Agrippa, because you know, you know about Jesus. You've heard about the way. You believe the prophets. I know you believe the prophets. So he just turns all the spotlight on him. And how does the king respond to that? Verse 28. Just notice the conviction that Agrippa's feeling. He says, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Now, I never once heard Paul try to persuade him to be a Christian. Did, did you? Paul's just laying out facts. He's like, look, I was, a, I was a, a Pharisee, and Jesus arrested me on this road, and he shined the light on me. I fell down. He picked me up. He called me to the Jews and the Gentiles. I've been preaching about this man named Jesus who everybody says was dead and still is dead, but we know that he was killed, and now he's alive. That's all he said. And from that, King Agrippa went, whoa, 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 are you trying to get me saved? Paul's response is this. Short time or long, I pray God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am. King Agrippa's response to God's peace, trying to blow his peace to pieces. Verse 30, the king rose and left the room. Okay, is anybody lost? All right, here we go. We're going to tie it all together. 
Number three, putting the pieces together. The big idea again, God's peace often blows man's peace to pieces. I need you to remember this. Everything we just read took place with Paul in chains. Okay? Anybody walking around with chains today? I don't mean like the cool chains, right? Like handcuffs, shackles. Paul is in prison the whole time. So living in God's peace is not the same as living an easy life. For many of us, that statement alone is enough to shatter your peace to pieces. Because we have been taught in America that Christianity is an easy life. That as long as we have peace with God, then everything's going to feel great. But the goal of Christianity is not anointed bubble gum and butterflies. It's peace with God, a relentless pursuit of bringing that same peace to others who need it. And these three leaders rejected that as far as we know. And they left Paul and James. Now, why is that important? Because if you've been in church in America any amount of time, I mean, I hope if you've been in this church for the last two years, you've heard something different. But if you've been in most churches in America, you have been trained to believe that anything that makes you feel the tad bit uncomfortable has to be from Satan. And that's just not Scripture. God is often very much at work disrupting your peace so that you can have true peace with him. Paul had peace because he knew something that he would later write in Romans 8.39, that nothing could separate him from the God who gave him peace. Just jot this down. Jesus is the Prince of Peace, but he's not a king of convenience. He's a prince of peace. He's not the king of convenience. Paul knew that. Paul was inconvenienced all the time as a result of having peace with God. Um, this week I got an email. Somebody sent me a transcript of an interview that somebody has done with Francis Chan. If, um, some of you know who Francis Chan is and some of you don't. But Francis Chan is a, a pastor. He started a church in 1994 in Simi Valley in California. And it grew to be a church of 5,000. That's a success, right? That's a good thing. But in 2010, he resigned his position because he got tired of teaching church people things that they should do when he knew that they were not going to do them. And so he left that position. And today he works in, an, in a ministry downtown San Francisco, um, doing a great thing, not really growing that fast. And somebody sat down and did an interview with him just to catch up with where he was in his ministry. And I just want to share a part of what fits with this message. I know that we're not San Francisco, are we? Last time I checked, <laughs> we're not. It's a little bit bigger than us. But you know what? We are a downtown church. I wouldn't want to be anywhere else. Um, we will see things downtown that churches that are not downtown will not see. In fact, we'll see some things downtown that even downtown churches won't see. Because we want to be where people are. We specifically want to be accessible to people that need Jesus Christ. And so I think what he has to say relates to us. Here was the first question that he was asked. What's new about your ministry focus these days? And here's his answer. I'm excited again. When I was in high school, I used to cry for my friends when I would think about spending eternity apart from them. When I was working in the restaurant, I used to cry over the other waiters and waitresses and pray, God, you've got to save these people. 
But working in the church, I didn't weep a whole lot for the lost. It was just kind of a sporadic here and there. But now that I'm spending so much more time building relationships with unbelievers and loving on them, there are a lot more tears, a lot more sadness, a lot more urgency. It is painful and can be depressing. And yet there's this peace about finally going out and fishing for men. At the same time, even though I'm crying, it's a good sadness. I think it's what Paul felt in Romans 9, of that unceasing anguish, the great sorrow and unceasing anguish. While it hurts, there's also this peace that this is what I'm supposed to be doing. It's great that I hurt for people again. It's great that I actually weep for the lost. I'm not just this zombie going out doing a job. It feels good to care so much and even hurt so much at times. So I would just really encourage people to not get too caught up in methodology or whatever else. Because once your heart breaks enough for people, you'll find a way to get the message to them. God is not interested in how you feel. He's interested in saving a world. And He'll blow how we feel to pieces in order to get us to the place where we'll respond like that. God's peace often blows man's peace to pieces. Let me just say this one more time. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. He is not a King of Convenience. If you're here this morning, you've never made a decision to follow Jesus, then I can guarantee you this. Your attempts at peace may work for a while. But at some point, um, just like those infants in the crib, it's not going to last. The peace that you think you might have on your own will not last. If you're here and you've been doing the church thing, then the idea of really allowing God to give you his peace by blowing your peace to pieces is not sounding very convenient. I mean, can we just honestly say that? That's, I mean, who gives an altar call like that? Hey, come on, let God just mess you up. Don't you want to cry all the time for your friends that are going to hell? We, we don't respond to that. Hey, you want to go plant a church where we'll have awesome lights and we'll keep everything in the dark so you can feel really good all the time? Oh, I'm all over that. Hey, you want to go plant a church downtown and meet a lot of people that are nothing like you and will make you uncomfortable? Um, let me pray about that. Now you tell me which one Jesus wants. I can only speak for me, okay? But I'm so convicted by the person that I see in Paul in Acts. I mean, it did not matter to Paul who was in front of him. The, the least important to the most important. He said the same thing. He was concerned for the souls of men. I'm convicted by Francis Chan. I mean, just that that's just part of the interview. I can't even read you the rest of it because I'll be on a puddle. I'll be in, on the floor in a puddle. I'm so convicted by that. And, and I just want God to blow my peace to pieces. I want to walk the streets of Albemarle and weep. I don't want to step into this place and stick my chest out and say, look how good we have it. This is just a place. 
It's just a resource. And if we aren't using this to achieve God's plan, then we've missed it. And, and we're just starting. This is like week two in here. I don't want to miss it. We're just starting. I'm so convicted by that. And so for me, I, I can't even tell you what to do. But for me, the, the only response to what we've read today in Acts and what we read from Francis Chan, the only response to these truths is repentance and simply recommitting myself to follow God's peace even when it seems inconvenient to me.